0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, I was here a year ago, and I talked to Gang of Smack about my girls. I bragged about them. I'm the Vincent Girls basketball coach, and uh, last year was their senior year. Uh, a lot of them have gone on to college on full ride scholarships first, and their family to do so, be in college. So it's been quite the journey. But uh, I, it was a group of girls I had had since the seventh grade, and they pulled off something absolutely phenomenal. And I just want to give you just a quick little quick uh, celebration, a, quick little uh, clip of that celebration real quick, just so you see, here's what happened. All the way back out to Brink, Brink backing it in, kicks it cross court. As it comes down, here it is, the final count. That's the game right there. It is a final, history is made as Benson has pulled the upset of the century, defeating two-time defending champion Southbridge, 66-43. Such an incredible feat. I always get emotional about it. Um, I didn't come here to cry this morning, but um, the impact it had not only in the city but in the community um, was absolutely phenomenal. And uh, uh, we ended up beating the two-time state champion who was predicted to, to win it again. They had the number one kid in the country, and we were just sort of an afterthought uh, in terms of the game, and ended up winning the game by 24 points. Uh, played the game of our life, and uh, God is so good. How are you this morning? Because I'm doing great. I'm still doing my victory lap. All right. So this morning, uh, Pastor Pete was right. I just want <clears throat> to, I want to push you this morning. All right. I want you to be a brand. I don't want you just to be a believer. I want you to be a thinker. Sometimes we're more believer than thinker. Believers just take whatever uh, is taught and told them in terms of how to think, and they just swallow it whole without thinking. I want you to be a thinker as well. And so this morning, I want to to challenge uh, established meaning of the text uh, and figure out how And what God is calling us as a church and as Jesus people, how to live and move in the world. And so this morning, um, I want to look at this parable because I think oftentimes we have one definition of it. The kingdom of God has always been subversive, and we talk about the subversive nature of the kingdom. And we've always said that the kingdom of God is counterintuitive. That it comes from the wilderness, the desert, and our struggle oftentimes is that we want to domesticate its boldness and its truth. So this morning, I come to you looking at this parable, and I want to force you into a choice. I want to push you into a choice. Um, And so this morning, I want you to consider your lens, your hermeneutic, how you see the Bible, and how you draw your own conclusions. Uh, oftentimes, when we come to the parables, what we end up doing is, is that we look at the parables from the most powerful person in the parable, and we draw our co- own conclusions about it. So, I want us to not only look at it from the most powerful person in the parable, but I want us to look at it also from the most powerless person in the parable. Do you hear me this morning? I don't want you just to look at it from a place of power and privilege. I want us to look at it from a place of poverty and powerlessness. You can come to the scriptures and look at it from a top-down perspective or you can look at it from a bottom-up perspective. You can look at it from empire or you can look at it from a slave narrative. Theologian Jake Cameron Carter said this. He said, Christian theology at its best should be a fugitive discourse because it thinks from the position of the slave. So how do we look at the scriptures from the bottom up? Oftentimes, most of our thinking is sutured to empire. It's sutured to a Western Eurocentric ideal of how the Bible is to be read and how we're to live out the kingdom of God. And yet God has called us to be subversive. But this morning, in order for us to do so, I invite you into looking at the scriptures different. And so this morning, we can either look at it from the perspective of the most powerful person in it, which is the witch man or the rich man who has a slave. Or we can look at this passage from the most powerless person in this parable, which is the third slave. Now, the problem is, is that if you look at it from any of those perspectives, you look at it from the perspective of the rich man, what ends up happening is you do know that it starts to break down and becomes extremely problematic. I don't know about you. I would look at this parable and I would struggle with it as a guy who's got a master's in theology, you know, like who's taught. This passes many of times, and I found some very troubling things about that that keep me from living subversively out the kingdom. And so this morning, as I look at it, from the most powerful position, I realize that it's got some issues. Oftentimes, when we read this parable, we see the parable as a teaching on stewardship. And when we look at it from a teaching on stewardship, there's some theological issues, there's some social, economic issues, and then there's some moral issues that start to break down. So if we look at this thing from the perspective of the, uh, the, the rich man who summons the slaves and he gives them talents, one he gives five, and then the other one he gives two, and the other one he gives one, and then he goes on a journey and he comes back and he wants to give an account with what they did with their talent. And The first slave said he takes his five talents and he doubles it. He takes it from five to 10. The second slave takes his two talents and doubles it and takes it from two to four. The third slave, we know exactly what the third slave was. Right, he took his his talent, dug a hole and buried it. And the moral of the story has always been be a good steward of God's resources that he gave you, So that on judgment day, when you stand before him, you don't get hell, you get heaven. So don't be like the third slave. How many of you have ever heard that sermon? Raise your hand, okay. You do realize there's some theological issues with that. Right, because if we as Christians read ourselves into the text and see ourselves as the slaves, the one thing that these slaves have in common is what? They all have the same status, right? The only difference between those that get heaven and those that get hell is based upon what they do and how they steward their talent. So if you're saying as a Christian, when you read this text and we read ourselves into it as one of the three slaves and we say that we have status, You do realize, on a theological level, when we understand the gospel, status talks about sonship. It talks about being justified by faith. It talks about our identity and who we are in Christ. In other words, it talks about how our salvation was secured. Justification on one end, being in right standing with God, sanctification on the other, how we live out of that justification. So if we're reading into this, realizing ourselves as one of the three slaves, having as equal status as the slave in terms of our relationship with God, I think what we have to conclude at the end of the day is, is, do our stewardship undo our sonship? Absolutely not. But you have to consider that in this text, at the end of the day, does our stewardship undo our sonship? And so there becomes a theological issue. But then on another level, there's a social slash economic issue. How in the world do we see this master if we're considering this master to be God? Because in this parable, in verse 21, it seems that this master supports profit maximization. In verse 27, it says, or it says, it seems like he's supporting usury because when you look at the returns of these other two slaves, the returns are absolutely ridiculous given that the master went on a journey and came back. It absolutely makes no sense. Or you have to look at this master and say, is this really what we're saying about God that he takes the little that the have-nots have and give it to the halves? Is that really what we're saying about God? Is that really what we're saying about the kingdom? That in verse 30 that this God as the third slave said is ruthless? So not only does it have theological issue and social issues, it has moral issues. Think about it for a second. In verse 24, the third slave says, I knew you to be a hard man. In fact, when you look at the same parable in Luke chapter 19, verse 27, here's what what the slave says about the master. He says, this is what the master says about the slave. He said, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them Bring them here and kill them in front of me. It's really, is this what we're saying about God? Or is there something else? Can we consider this parable from the perspective of the third slave? It's interesting when we look at it from that perspective because when the master comes to the third slave, what does the third slave say? He says, I buried your talent because I was afraid of you. Now, think about that for a second. Ask yourself this question. If this third slave was so afraid of his master, then why didn't he do what the master asked him to do in the first place? That would have made more sense, right? Like if my wife and I are going out for drinks and we grab our kids and we say, look, the kitchen's a mess. When we get back, y'all need to have this kitchen clean. And we leave, we go have drinks. Then we come back and they're sitting on the couch eating ice cream, watching TV, and the kitchen is still dirty. And we grab them into the room. We say, you guys didn't do what we told you to do. And they said, we were afraid. That's why we're eating ice cream on the couch watching TV. (laughs) It's not that the master wasn't afraid, but doing right was more important than his fear of the master. So what is he doing? Well, we gotta understand this passage from, the first century audience that Jesus was speaking to. The first century audience would not have to allegorize to understand this story. In fact, Bruce Molina in his New Testament world insight from the cultural anthropology has shown, quote, that in the traditional Mediterranean society, the ideal of economic sufficiency was actually stability, not self-advancement. Anyone trying to accumulate inordinate wealth imperiled the equilibrium of society and was thus understood to be dishonorable. Greed was widely believed to characterize the rich who extorted and defrauded other members of the community through lucrative trading, tax collecting, and lending money at an exorbitant interest. Theologian Chet Myers said this, he said, in the first century, without the availability of today's electronic financial instruments, security exchanges and stock markets, hedge funds, arbitrage, trading on the margins, etc. To double such a fortune in currency within a journey's time was unthinkable and impossible through honest work. Think about the talent, it said a bag of money, but actually it's a talent. When you think about just one talent, one talent back then was 6,000 denaries. One denary was a day wage. That's equivalent to like $2.5 million in today's currency. And one of the servants, the first servant, had five of them, the second one had two of them. The third had one of them and the master goes on a journey and he comes back and they make a hundred if not a thousand percent return. In the first century listener who heard this would have never heard nor interpreted that parable that way. Our 21st century Western Eurocentric eyes have been trained to hear it different than the way Jesus' audience was hearing it. So what was that play? What is Jesus confronting in the parable? What he's confronting is, is an economic world system that we wrestle with in terms of the kingdom of God. How do we use our money? How do we live out the kingdom of God? Back in Jesus's day, there was an agrarian system, which was the peasant system. And it was called the use value economic system. It was off the land. It was well, what they produced on sea. That was the money that was used back in those days. And, and there was always this war against the elite currency system, which was the exchange value system, which meant that 2% of the rich owned 50% of the arable land. So back in Jesus' day, when the listener is listening to this parable, they would not be celebrating the first two slaves, So the question is, what is the third slave doing? Why is he burying his talent? I believe the third slave refuses to play the game. He is speaking truth to power. He buries the talent because he understands the disruptive Force of the talent in terms of how it's being used in the culture of that day. And when you look at the whole parable in its entirety, or when you look at the whole chapter of Matthew 25 in its whole entirety, you realize that the first parable Jesus talks about is watchfulness. And then he gets into the second parable, which is really addressing how the kingdom deals with economic systems of their day and even our day and then he gets into the parable about the sheep and the goat and about being sick and naked not visiting prisoners and how we treat people and Jesus is saying that in order for us to be watchful one of the most practical ways we do that is with our money and how we treat people the very two things that we struggle with in our American consumeristic Christianity here in America. Now, to take it a step further, if you look with me in Luke chapter 19, it gets even more interesting because Jesus talks about this exact same parable but he doesn't talk about a rich master, he talks about a king. And if you go into Luke chapter 19, verse 11, it says that while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, which is the parable of the talents. He says, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Now, most historians would say that this king that Jesus is talking about is Archelaus, because Herod just died, and so he's going to Rome to take power. And the disciples earlier here just got done saying, after they saw Jesus performing miracles, they're saying to themselves, man, the kingdom of God must be coming right now. And Jesus says, my kingdom does not grab power that way. Not the way of Archelaus." And then what does he do? He launches into the parable of the talents. Now, the interesting thing is, it's not this parable, but the parable, not the story that precedes this parable, which is the story of Zacchaeus. And when you think about the story of Zacchaeus, who is Zacchaeus? He's a rich tax collector, he's wealthy, and he gets saved. And he takes his resources and he comes to Jesus on his way, headed home with Jesus. And he takes his resources and what does he do? He says, I've I've given half my resources to the poor and anyone that I defrauded, I paid them four times. Here's Zacchaeus disrupting the system. Can you imagine when Zacchaeus goes to Rome and says he got saved? How that was going to fly? And I think it's interesting that leading into this parable, the talents, you got the story of Zacchaeus. And yet the same parable in Matthew chapter five, you've got the two servants and then you've got the third servant who buries his talent and refuses to participate into the system. Sort of, we see Zacchaeus as an application of the third servant. Because this is what the kingdom of God always causes us to do to disrupt systems, to not play the game, to live subversive, to be counterintuitive. Interesting here in Luke chapter 19, this whole chapter is about power. You got Zacchaeus who's a man of power, a man of great stature who gets saved and begins to use his resources different you got Archelaus on his way to Rome to grab power because Herod dies. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not like that. And after this parable, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, grabs a donkey, and enters into Jerusalem as a humble servant. And then literally right after that, he goes where? In this same chapter, he goes into the temple and he disrupts what? The money changers. Man, we have so been accustomed to seeing the third servant as something other than how the first century saw the third servant. Man, we have wrestled with trying to live out subversively the kingdom, and yet Jesus is introducing us to the kingdom right here in this parable. He's calling all of us to bury our talent. This is not about whether or not can you play the guitar well or not, or if you're a great speaker or a great writer. It's not that talent, that talent is money and how we use it and are we subversive with it. This is what God has called his people to be different. I think about in Portland, I think about an organization of three Christian women who decided in PPS, which is Portland Public Schools, they said, you know what, they pulled their kids out and they said, you know what, we're tired of our African-American kids in classes where their history isn't being taught. Where well, there's nothing of value that really shares who they are culturally, and so these three Women had a harebrained ideal to start their own charter school that would be culturally specific. And during the PPS hearings, no charter school had ever got their first rendering of their of, of their proposal through the PPS board. And for the first time, this proposal gets to the board. Now they got this school off the ground and they got 150 people on the waiting list to be a part of a multicultural, culturally specific Education of school that is showing history in a different way. They are truly interrupting the system. When I think about Benson girls basketball, first in the state's history, a black girl basketball team wins a state championship at the highest level. Two years ago, they were talking about closing Benson. A year prior to that, they were talking about getting rid of the sports program. Here you have the poorest school at the state tournament, 78% on free and reduced lunch. A third of the girls played in track shoes a few years ago and yet we go on this historic run and tell a story, not just through them, but also for so many young African American girls who were let out of school early to get to the arena to watch black girls run out of a tunnel. To reimagine what... Black girl basketball could look like in what USA Today called the whitest city in America. I'm curious how God is calling each and every one of us here in this room to think about how we purpose our money, how we use our resources, who sits at our table, how we do ministry in this city, how we engage other communities that are different than us. How disruptive are we? How are we using power? How do we use power just when you go home for Thanksgiving around your family that tells jokes about other races of people that you sit and listen to all the time and say nothing? How disruptive are we? The interesting piece of this story is the fact that this third slave takes his talent, which had great value, and buries it. But we also understand that God had something of great value, which was his son. The third slave buries his talent as a protest against economic injustice. God takes his son, buries him in the belly of the earth as a protest against an unjust world. Was the third slave afraid? Absolutely. Think about the first two slaves. They entered into the joy of their master. We all understand that. Because if you play the game and you're complicit, there's a reward with complicity. But if you don't play the game and you bury the talent, what happened to the third slave? You get kicked out into outer darkness, but here's the beautiful thing. You stand in a long line of other prophets that had happened to the exact same people. Daniel got the pit, the Hebrew boys got the fir- fiery furnace, Daniel got the lion's Then The prophets were always maligned Jesus was crucified outside the camp. And like the third slave that was afraid, Jesus was afraid when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, realizing the magnitude of what he was doing, realizing that he was getting to unearth an unjust economic system and unearth an unjust world and create a brand new community that Rome was not having. That the religious community was not having. Jesus was a subversive prophet. So, this morning, how are you to live out your faith? How are you to live out your resources? What is God calling? Antioch to be here in this city. Because at the end of the day, we all know it's going to cost us something. You can't talk about living subversive and being counterintuitive and it not cost you anything. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Any who wishes to find his life must lose his life, but he who loses his life for my sake will find it. But to live this kind of radical kingdom, to live in this kind of reality, will require something of every one of us, including myself. And so this morning, as we come to the communion table, we come to the communion table because we realize that we serve a subversive king. That Jesus came to create a brand new humanity. That when you even think about how Jesus even rearranged relationships, you realize that neither conservatives or liberals liked him. That Jesus created a whole new category, a whole new way of being in the world. But that whole new way of being cost him his life. (laughs) The kingdom of God starts from the bottom. I remember a couple of years ago when there was a big argument between black lives matter and all lives matter and you had one camp saying no black lives matter and then other people were saying no all lives matter and then I looked at the Bible and I realized that the Bible is way more subversive than that because the Bible does say Uh, All lives matter, right? Because at the end of the day, we're all sinners. We all need Jesus. We're all broken and imperfect, imperfect people. And yet at the same time, as true as it is that all lives matter, God always started his kingdom with the lives of the ones who didn't. The Syrophoenician woman, the man smitten with leprosy. The kingdom of God always came from the desert. So this morning, as we come to the communion table, we celebrate and we enter into this new humanity because we have a God who buried his talent. in the belly of the earth named Jesus as a protest against an unjust system that rearranges relationships the wrong way, that uses power the wrong way, that uses resources the wrong way. And God calls us into that kind of humanity. This multicultural, diverse church where we sit at the table with people not like us, but different than us. So let's come to the table this morning. Or do we go to worship first? How do you guys end this? (laughs) What do we do? Do we worship? You got this. Let's pray then. All right. We'll start there. Then we'll come to the table. Father, we thank you today. We thank you for your grace. God, you call us to be your people. But you want to change our lens You want to change how we live in the world. You want to change how we use our resources. You want to change how we arrange relationship. You want to change how we use power. We want to live subversive. But it costs us something. It requires that we deny ourselves, that we pick up our cross. We lose ourselves to truly find ourselves. God, you asked us to enter into this kind of humanity that is broken and beaten. And I pray for your grace to, to do what we can't do. To be what we can't be, to live in a way that we, we can't live apart from your work in our life. And to be your followers, to be emissaries of the kingdom, and to truly understand what it means when we say the kingdom is counterintuitive, that it's upside down. God, may you call us to live upside down. May we look at the parables, not always from a position of power and privilege, but to see it from the bottom up. And to see your work in us and prophetically calling us to be these kind of people. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.